On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the February 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Nathan, Medical Director of the Advanced Lung Disease and Transplant Program from the Department of Medicine at Inova Fairfax Hospital in Falls Church, Virginia. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure being with you today. So my, my compliments to you for uh, you know, this head of the curve article in the sense of giving us a, 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 an insight into the future of, of transplant. Um, and in particular, I mean, like that's actually the title of the article, The Future of Lung Transplantation. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I was excited to read it for a lot of, and I'm sure our listeners are too, for a lot of reasons. You know, we all, those of us who don't do transplant, which I would argue is probably the majority of us uh, who are listening, uh, you know, we, we all know about it in a very kind of abstract sense. You know, you send a patient for evaluation and then, they either come back with lungs later or they don't, but you, uh, we don't, it's sort of a black box for a lot of us. And so I was really intrigued to read sort of a relative, here's what's going on, and here's what's really happening in the next five to ten years. Um, what, I, I guess there's, there's so many different things, but what is it that you're most excited about that you see happening in the next few years? What's, what's really got you and the transplant community excited? Well, it's funny that you should mention that. It's a bit of a black box to you, but because I, I hate to admit, but but for many of us, it's also a bit of a black box having dealt with lung transplants for only 20, <laughs> for over 25 years now. There's a lot that still remains to be learned. So um, the more you're in it, the more you realise you don't know. And so I think there are actually a lot of exciting things that are happening in transplantation. And I think, um, you, you know, the way the whole specialty field has evolved is when you talk about lung transplants, you're talking about advanced lung disease in general. And, um, you know, what we try and do in the transplant field is to actually avoid having a lung transplant. Um, so one of the, the big aspects, and I think where there's a lot of excitement, are new therapies that are coming down the pike for all the various diseases that we typically will do lung transplants for. And the best example of this is pulmonary arterial hypertension, where we have a whole bunch of new medications that are approved uh, recently and, and more remotely that enables us to um, manage these patients more effectively and avoid the need for transplantation in many of these patients. And I think we're going to see more of the same in um, uh, some of the other diseases like cystic fibrosis where you get the, uh, uh, the gene modulators that are being approved and used now that are modifying the course of the disease um, going right to the source of, of where it's happening in terms of the cystic gene. Um, but then also equally exciting is what's happening in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, IPF is the biggest indication for lung transplantation now. In, in the U.S. and now as of mid-October last year we have two new drugs approved for IPF whereas previously we didn't have anything. So how this affects the natural history of the disease remains to be seen but I think it's going to perhaps modulate the way we approach patients with IPF and I think if you look at a disease like IPF it's kind of where PAH was 15-20 years ago that hopefully these two drugs uh, will just be the start of many other agents that will come uh, come to the fore that will be available and hopefully avert the need for transplantation or at least have something else to, to offer patients. So, um, you know, when, when you talk about what's new and what's happening, there are many kind of um, domains within transplants where there is activity happening that I think is going to be very helpful to our patients in the, in the future. So that's really addressing what's happening, what's happening on, the, on the pre side of things. Then 
despite um, you know uh, our abilities to do transplant, there is still a imbalance between uh, donors and potential recipients. And I think that there's exciting stuff that's happening on the donor side, trying to increase the donor pool. Things like uh, ex vivo lung perfusion, which I think is going to help quite a bit in terms of taking lungs that previously would have been discarded because they wouldn't have been used for reasons of pneumonia or contusion or uncertainty about the status of the lung. Actually harvesting these lungs, uh, perfusing them in a box, so to speak, and there's a figure in the, in the, in the article um, that, that gets to that in terms of trying to improve the function of the lung um, and they're making a, a decision if, if it can be used or not. So I think that's exciting and that's something that's going to help hopefully improve the donor pool. Um, one thing that we wrestle with with transplantation is if you look at the um, long-term outcomes, the biggest cause of mortality and morbidity after the first year is bronchiolitis obliterans or the physiologic correlate bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome. And a new acronym has been introduced recently, which I think is going to help us to develop a better handle on what's happening long-term in these lungs, and that's chronic lung allograft dysfunction, with the acronym CLAD for short. And this is a, a, a more a broader uh, term that recognizes the fact that not all that goes wrong in the lung is BOS, that there are other things that happen. And I think just by virtue of the fact that we're now defining this, uh, it will enable us to get a better handle on this and come up with etiologies and causes and hopefully effective preemptive strategies to try and prevent CLAD and improve the long-term outcomes. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, in terms of jumping back to organ availability, uh, things like xenotransplants, that's still many years away, but that's something that uh, will be coming down the pike. Uh, manipulation of the lung outside the body as part of the EVLP process. Maybe we can do some gene um, uh, therapy of the lungs and improve them or make them less immunogenic outside the body prior to their implantation. So um, that's another aspect that I think uh, potentially will be exciting in the future. And then everyone talk. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, what do you think also about strategies to, um, especially on the, on the donor side, as you outlined, I mean, clearly all of us in pulmonary could, uh, and as, you know, both our specialty, you know, in the sense of how we work with our patients, but also, um, as you alluded to, like the various drugs and the drugs in development for the disease states. Clearly, if we, you know, have less patients that need a transplant, then that would steer more lungs towards the diseases that don't necessarily have a therapeutic, you know, intervention. But right. I was also struck by that, you know, the, the real limit of, of when you have a donor, you know, how often the other organs uh, are procured, but that the lungs essentially were deemed, you know, not adequate. And, you know, and then there's a, a long list of reasons as to why that may have occurred. But what I was really struck at by your article is um, uh, the real kind of shift, and it seems like a cultural shift. And, and I don't know if it's, you know, with some of this dogmatic in the sense of, well, we can't do this, but then as people started to push it, it became sort of obvious that uh, maybe this dogma wasn't well-founded and we, maybe we should shift it. You know, the, you, talk, you allude to some of the new guidelines that will be coming out, and without a doubt the old ones were from 06, right? Right. So I'd love to really focus on that because I think that's where many of us, even if we don't do transplant, we still are in a critical care setting and potentially dealing with patients that are in a scenario where they are going to become a donor and, you know, what we could be doing to ensure that those in the transplant world have more lungs to transplant. 
So there is a shift, as you point out, I think both on the donor and recipient side. Um, in terms of donation, we're always trying to push the envelope. And then once you push the envelope and something gets established as standard of practice, then you're looking to push the envelope even more. So right. things that we used to regard as uh, absolute contraindications to a donor, we typically will, will utilize those lungs now. And we, in, the, in the field, when you take the calls, you never get the perfect lung or perfect set of lungs. There's always some kind of curveball that comes with it that sometimes makes these decisions very difficult to do. But we are, I think, generally as a, as a community, more liberal in the types of lungs that we are prepared to transplant now. So those original criteria are getting loosened up as, as we uh, get more familiar and more comfortable with some of the donors that we've been successful in transplanting. Then on the recipient end, if you take age, for example, when we first started doing lung transplants in the mid-80s, we used to say 60 was upper age limit. Then it became 65. Then the guidelines from um, 2006 said, well, you can look at patients 65 to 70, but they have to be in pristine shape in order to transplant them. If you look at the most recent guidelines, which are available when I last checked as an EPUB, they say, well, we wouldn't recommend transplanting someone beyond the age of 75. So there's this uh, kind of creep phenomenon. As we get better and as we um, do older patients and get more comfortable with these folks and the success, some of the su successes that have happened in patients north of 70 has enabled us to kind of push the envelope continually. And I think what we're going to see more, as I mentioned, there's a shift to IPF. Well, IPF is a disease of the elderly, so there will be a bunch of 70-plus-year-olds who might be um, pretty good transplant candidates. Right, right. And that, that obviously centers around a whole completely different discussion, uh, which I'm sure is always a component of transplant in, in the sense of, you know, ethics of transplant at what age, you know, do you, do you cut off from a perspective of you have younger patients waiting on a list. But that's a, yeah, that's that's a completely exactly different right. discussion and was not the scope of your article. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy, I'm happy to write another article about that. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, that is a discussion, and there's many issues involved. And, the, you know, even one of the other controversial areas in transplant is what kind of transplant, a single or bilateral. Right. And, you know, there's some groups that will only do bilateral, some that uh, do mostly singles, and, um, you know, the outcomes might be a little bit different. That's also controversial. But, um, you, you know, do you take, do you satisfy two recipients with two single lungs or do you give the whole block or the two lungs to, to one recipient? So there are some ethical issues in terms of how the organs are distributed as well. Um, and that, um, you know, is the subject of a, of a different debate. I'm, I'm also struck by, um, maybe this is where the guidelines will hopefully clarify some things, but there seems from the outside of, uh, observer's perspective a wide variation in management uh, of these patients, um, both from the perspective in the immediate post-transplant uh, arena and then, you know, subsequent. And that there's, you know, and maybe I'm just mistaken, but is there, you know, every center sort of seems to have their way of doing it. And, and there's, you know, where, where is transplant in the sense of having some level of a, of a standardization on how to approach these patients? That's a, a very good question, an important question, because there isn't much standardization, although the variation from uh, center to center is not that great. If you, take okay. one if you take one example, some centers believe in using induction therapy and other centers don't use induction therapy. Uh, the, the problem with lung transplant is that we haven't had many randomized controlled studies to test one hypothesis versus the next. 
So a lot of people are going based on their training or their own anecdotal experience without, um, you know, firm footing in terms of the evidence to support uh, that particular practice. A lot of what we do in lung transplantation hinges on the experience of kidneys, livers and hearts and what was done there. So... Um, uh, a lot of it is based on expert opinion as well. So that's why there is somewhat of a lack of homogeneity uh, in terms of how different centers approach things and how they treat patients. But we, we don't have many options in these patients, so uh, therapies are not that, uh, not that much different on a center-by-center -center basis. Everyone uses one of the calcineurin inhibitors, mostly tacrolimus. Uh, most people will use an anti-metabolite used to be mostly azathioprine, now it's mostly mycophenolate, and folks use steroids with or without induction therapy. And then prophylaxis is, is not that different as well. We prophylax against CMV uh, with uh, gancyclovir or gancyclovir equivalent. We prophylax, prophylax against fungal infections and um, using different, uh, different antifungals. So there are nuances in, for example, how we prophylax against fungal infections, duration, uh, t uh, type of therapy we use. But for the most part, practices aren't that dissimilar. There are, uh, there are, you can take each aspect of lung transplant and say, well, there is some variation. There's variation in what folks will accept for recipients, what they'll accept for donors, how they manage them in the immediate post-op period, how the whole transplant program is run for that matter. You know, a lot of, some of the programs are more surgically driven, others are more medically driven. And um, so if you add up all these little differences, there can be big differences in individual programs. One of the things that I'd like to mention that maybe didn't come across in, in the article that um, I think I certainly have a growing appreciation of, and that is the balance of transplantation. And what I mean by balance and what people typically uh, know about transplantation is the balance between infection rejection, not too much immunosuppression. You give too much immunosuppression, the patient's going to get an infection. If you don't give enough, they're going to reject. That's one of the many balances, but there are other balances that we have to work with as well uh, in terms of the calcineurin inhibitors and renal dysfunction, that being one of the other balances. We, right. use, we use the anti-metabolites, and typically that affects the bone marrow, so you're constantly juggling the dose of those medications versus the white count or against the thrombocytopenia. One of the things we see actually more in the IPF patients um, is a thromboembolic events. So one of the struggles we have and one of the other balances that we have to deal with is when do we anticoagulate the patients after the surgery. And typically we'll anticoagulate them a couple of days later, but a lot of times they'll have a pulmonary hemorrhage or a, uh, some kind of a bleed as a result of the anticoagulation. Um, so there's no right or wrong answer in terms of trying to work that balance for individual patients. So a lot of what we see in transplant is individualized, tailored therapy based on nuances of an individual case. Fair enough, fair enough. Now, the other thing, that, um, because when your article was talking about, you know, all the exciting things that are going on, and, and later I, wanna, I definitely want to explain more on CLAD and, and, and bronchiolitis obliterans, et cetera, but I'm also struck by, um, or at least I have the perception that there's been a growth in the number of centers doing lung transplant. And that on one level always seems like a, a good idea. It has, you know, more people, that's offers more opportunities for your patients. But then it also strikes me that, you know, the, the amount of sort of repetition and system that you need in place to have a successful transplant program 
um, has the potential to to dilute down an area if there's too many competing programs. I'm kind of curious, generically speaking, because I'm sure it's a loaded question, what your thoughts are on uh, some of the growth that's going on in the number of transplant centers. Yeah, I have to be politically correct in answering this one. But I know you do. A, <laughs> you going to plead the fifth? <laughs> I do. Yeah. Let's skip to the next question, please. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I mean, um, uh, you know, I think that um, you can, if you have a program that's doing not many numbers, and I don't want to give an absolute number, right, then right, right, certainly no. the expertise uh, uh, and maintaining skills might be compromised. And there is data to show that those pa programs who don't do quite as many, the results might not be quite as good. Um, and those programs who do many more, the results generally are better. And those are the programs actually who can afford to take chances on marginal candidates or marginal right. donors. So it's a kind of situation of the more transplants you do, the more transplants you'll do. Um, right. And I, I think we see that as well. So I have to, there might also be an inflection point. What is too many? You know, can you do right. too many transplants that, okay, your expertise is there, but your staff is just too diluted to adequately take care of the patient? So oh, that's a good point. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure there's an optimal number, but certainly in a given area, um, there probably isn't a, need, there, there isn't a need for too many programs because it also becomes a costly endeavor for the individual centers to keep an adequate program up and going and the resources involved for small numbers is not necessarily commercially viable or necessarily in those patients' best interests. I think, I don't want to say the U.S. is saturated at this point. There probably are some areas which could do with uh, having a transplant program or two and other areas where there might be a few too many. Um, I think ultimately at the end of the day, you know, market forces will, uh, will dictate. Those patients who right. do well will continue to thrive and those who don't will probably go away. Now, I was, you know, How was I in terms of being politically correct and addressing that? Seemed that seemed perfect. You, walked, you know, you said earlier, lung transplant is all about balance. So, yeah, that's you know. true. I walked a fine line there. <laughs> you sure did. So, and then, um, so uh, it's interesting, uh, as someone who takes care of, who doesn't do anything with transplant, but takes care of some advanced lung diseases, you know, I, I will have a generic discussion with patients about transplant, and many of them come at it with a strong perceived um, kind of negative attitude towards it, despite the fact that they're in a, you know, situation that, that you know, would benefit from transplant. Yeah. And it is based on the perception of relatively unsuccessful long-term numbers, and particularly against other organs that get transplanted. Yeah. Um, and so, so let's talk about what's going on in the post-transplant arena, both from the immediate primary graft dysfunction through, you know, antibody-mediated rejections through, as you just said, and introduced us to CLAD, uh, but the chronic lung allograft dysfunction. I think that, um, you know, uh, where we're seeing more literature is in antibody-mediated rejection. As we get more sophisticated and sensitive assays to pick up on these uh, low-level antibodies, uh, donor-specific antibodies, I think there is a growing appreciation that these may play an important role in CLAD in chronic rejection. Um, so the literature is just starting to come out now trying to define that and, uh, you know, how, how best to address this and treat it I think still remains to be determined. We do have some newer agents that affect B-cell maturation and antibody production which have found a, a role in lung transplantation. But once again, the literature is case series, case reports, right. and uh, right. it's probably going to be very difficult to do a good randomized controlled study. 
Um, you brought up a point and issue which is important as well because when patients, what patients hear and when they read the literature themselves and they see that the median survival after a lung transplant is five to seven years, uh, depending on what your primary disease is, and they think, well, my gosh, if I, if I get a new lung or want to get a new lung, I have five years and that's it. And something we constantly have to reinforce to patients is that's just the average. You know, 50% of the patients will live beyond five to seven years. We right. don't know what group you're going to be in. And another thing to stress to patients is, well, when I quote you five-year data, I can only quote you from 2010 and previously. We hope that the patients that we transplant in 2015, when we look back in 2020, we'll see that the five-year survival has actually improved. So right. it's important to put transplant in the appropriate context. Right. So what help, I guess... You know, when I was reading your article, uh, that was the first time I'd come across CLAD. Um, could, you, could you expand on that? Uh, yeah, it's actually, it, it is an expansive, broad term. So, right. uh, you know, everything previously got labeled as BARS, bronchiolitis right. obliterans syndrome, which is a 20% decrease in the FEV1 without any other identifiable cause. But what we see clinically is that there are some patients who um, have a 20% have a decline in the FEV1, but the FEC goes down by 20%, and by golly, some of them get parenchymal infiltrates as well. So it's, it's not exactly as advertised uh, bronchiolitis obliterans. The original idea behind BOS was that it was a correlate and a surrogate for bronchiolitis obliterans, which typically isn't accompanied by, inter, uh, by, by infiltrates. So right. there, there's something else going on. What it is, we don't know. Is it some form of uh, chronic rejection? Is it antibody-mediated? Is this chronic aspiration? Chronic aspiration is another big issue in the post-transplant recipients, and what role is that playing? Or is this uh, the patient developed a viral infection or a bacterial infection, and because it's, uh, they don't have the ability, the same ability to repair the lung as a normal host might, they're just left with chronic infiltrates of, uh, that are residual from whatever insult happened. So um, I think the first step in trying to get a handle on this is to come up with better definitions, and hopefully in the coming years we'll have a better idea of the subgroups of CLAD, of which BARS is one, you know, what causes them, how it can be, be prevented, and how it can be treated. So I think we, once we've established these definitions, we just kind of put in the base for the house, the foundation of the house. Now we've got to build the house in terms of trying to understand how we're going to manage this. Well, I'm curious. So, you know, BOS came, a boss came around as a, you know, a, a clinical definition to, to, you know, remove the need for, you know, surgical lung biopsy to, to right. show, you know, or, well, or even, you know, uh, several transbronchial biopsies. But I'm curious in these ones where you're describing, d describing more of a kind of a restrictive physiology developing in CLAD, are there, are there pathologic correlates that have been seen with, with, you know, whether it's a transbronchial or a surgical lung biopsy? Yeah, in fact, they have, and it's been, a, a, for want of a better term, a hodgepodge of pathologic entities. One that springs to mind is uh, pleuroparenchymal fibroelastosis as one of the entities that's been described pathologically that is probably we can regard as a subgroup of CLAD. But then you, uh, some, when we take these patients for a surgical lung biopsy, sometimes they'll have a little bit of scarring, some interstitial fibrosis. Sometimes they'll have a diffuse alveolar pattern of injury. And sometimes they have a bunch of different things going on uh, where there might be some uh, occult infection together with some inflammation and some scarring. And 
I think that's what makes it also difficult to sort out is because a lot of times they can have multiple things going on in the lung at the same time. They can have chronic rejection, and chronic rejection is typically complicated by infections as well. So it becomes kind of a chicken-egg situation trying to figure out what came first. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I was also struck when I was reading the article, uh, jumping back to sort of the you know, what's going on and to, to get more donors, but the, the EVLP um, seemed really exciting. How, where is that in regards to being clinically adopted? I think at the moment um, there are a couple of companies with interest in the space, and in actual fact one of the companies took their technology before the FDA uh, probably last year sometime. I was actually on the advisory the FDA advisory committee for that, and I think the, the meeting went pretty well. And there are other companies involved in setting up research protocols um, to validate this technology as a way of improving um, and supplying lungs to patients and supplying lungs that are, uh, are equivalent to uh, the normal uh, methods of um, procurement. And I think the one of the potential values that might be realized down the road of EVLP is that it does give you the ability to manipulate the lung outside the body. I alluded to this earlier. Can we give these lungs very high doses of antibiotics that maybe we couldn't give systemically to a patient? Can we do some kind of immune modulation of the lung so that it goes into the body and with less likelihood of, of rejection? Uh, can we do some, uh, that might involve some form of gene therapy. You know, what can we instill within the lungs, through the bronchi, what can we perfuse through the lungs that will make them better and kind of prime them uh, to, to, for, for success for the individual patient. So I think the first step with EVLP is to show that we can improve lungs and that patients do well once we transplant those lungs. And I think what we're going to see in the future is further manipulation of the lung outside of the body. Um, so it's not, as far as I know, at this point at least, approved uh, but there are um, different centers who have their own version of EVLP. So it is happening um, uh, around the country uh, at the moment at individual centers. And there's actually one company who has um, set up a, a, a rather large facility, happens to be uh, fairly local to us, where they have operating rooms and uh, the ability to do a number of these lungs, to do EVLP in a number of these lungs, the concept being that if we as a transplant center accept a lung, but it's a marginal lung and we want to do EVLP, then our surgeons will go procure the lung, take it to the EVLP center where it will get perfused, reconditioned. We'll be able to monitor this real time and over the course of six or 12 hours make a decision if the lungs are going to be usable or not. If we decide they're usable, then our surgeons go back, pick up the lung, bring them back and do the transplant. Wow. Seems very exciting. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of hurdles to go over here, but it sure does seem like there's a. It, it, it would assume, making lots of assumptions. It sure seems like it would imply to to increase your your acceptable lungs for for transplant. The, the only downside of that is that it would increase the accept, number of acceptable lungs, but it would it will also increase the cost tremendously. So that, oh, that becomes a burden as well right. in terms of how do you who pays for it at the end of the day. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So the other area to, to, to contemplate in regards to expanding the lungs is, is rather than just the neurologically devastated, but someone who's status post-circulatory arrest. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the sense of that the, you harvest the lungs truly, you know, in a, in a circulatory arrested patient. Yeah. Um, could, you, could you expand on that? 
Yeah, so, you know, uh, typically um, we would um, get a, a, a donor from someone who is dead, brain dead, that is, but there right. is the, and this is going on at the moment, donation after cardiac death or a donation after circulatory arrest. So the concept is that someone might not be brain dead as yet, but their prognosis is extremely dismal. It's anticipated that they will succumb, and they are taken to the OR where uh, life support is, uh, is stopped, and then it's a matter of waiting for circulatory arrest to happen, and once that does happen naturally, then the organs are procured. Um, so um, it's a little bit different, but, but it is a way of also in, improving the, the donor pool. Um, I think for, for some people it's not quite as comfortable in terms of going to the OR and basically right. hanging out there waiting for the patient to, to succumb and pass on naturally, and sometimes when they're taken off the life support, that might not necessarily happen in, in um, right. a quick fashion, in which case right. you know, the transplant won't happen. There comes a point during that process where it no longer, no longer becomes feasible uh, to do a transplant. So, um, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a given that every candidate who, who's a DCD uh, um, donor after cardiac death or circulatory arrest will ultimately prove to have lungs that will be transplantable. That brings us back to EVLP, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So that, that might be where EVLP becomes more important, using the two uh, uh, DCD donors taking those lungs once they uh, have their circulatory arrest and then doing EVLP on those lungs, reconditioning them and getting them ready for transplant. So the two can happen in parallel, absolutely. So we've been talking for a little bit. What, what haven't we discussed? What, what you know, where should we, uh, where, you know, what other question have I failed to ask you? I think it's been pretty comprehensive. I think we've, um, I can't think of anything that we, we've missed that I think is um, that needs to be discussed. I think we touched on a lot of different important areas and actually some areas that weren't fully covered in the paper. So I do appreciate this opportunity. Oh, terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time and for you know, for, our, for our listeners. If you if you've not uh, picked up this article and and read it, it's it's a it's a fantastic read. It gives you a nice uh, glimpse into you know where the field's going. And I think uh, you know for someone like myself who, who doesn't do transplant, it was um, a really nice window into uh, into another world. So uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.